Well, as I introduced last week, uh, the, the elements of the periodic table is something that you would have learned in school. Um, our high school teacher at SBCS this past week came and found me and she said, hey, I just want to make sure that you know that I teach the elements of the periodic table. And I said, there's no doubt in my mind whatsoever that you do that. And um, thank you for doing so. But the elements of the periodic table are the elements that are essential to life. And so what I want to do here for several weeks is, is talk about what are the elements of church life that are absolutely essential to us to honor God and to be a biblical, gospel-centered, spirit-fueled church. So we're spending several weeks here. We're not talking about all of the elements that, uh, that uh, are essential to the church, but we are talking about several of them. And last week we talked about preaching, um, and specifically preaching the gospel. Uh, this week we're looking at evangelism and conversion. Next week we'll look at discipleship and then go on from there with membership and, and church leadership in the weeks following after that. But uh, this week we're talking about specifically conversion and evangelism. And in a few moments you're going to see how those two topics go together. I want to start here by going to a book um, that I know some of you have read. You've told me that you've read this book. It's, it's by Randy Alcorn. It's entitled 50 Days of Heaven. And here's what he says. Recently, I heard the story about a professional singer who was asked to sing at the wedding of one of Seattle's richest men. The wedding reception was to be held on the top two floors of Seattle's Columbia Tower. Everybody who was anybody in Seattle would be there. She was very excited about attending. At the start of the reception, the bride and groom ceremoniously walked up to the elevator at the bottom floor, cut a ribbon, and got on the elevator, followed by their guests. By the way, when I was reading this, I thought, I hope they're not on the same elevator at the same time. Anybody else get freaked out by a lot of people on an elevator? Anyway, we'll continue reading here. At the top of the stairs, outside of the great banquet room, stood a matardi with, with very thick, bound book. The professional singer identified herself. The man searched for her name and said, I'm not finding it. Can you spell it? She did, and still he couldn't find it. He said, I'm sorry, ma'am, but your name is not here. I just can't let you in. She protested, but I'm the singer. He responded, it does not matter who you are or what you did. If your name is not in the book, you cannot attend the banquet. She said, but the groom knows me. Go ask him. He said, I will not disturb the groom. These were his rules. His guests were to be written in the book. No one else is admitted. She left heartbroken. On the way home, she remembered that she had gotten an RSVP, which she never bothered to send in. She thought, I'm the singer. I don't need to RSVP. Now, if you think about that for just a moment and you equate it to spiritual things, there's a whole lot of people who expect to get into heaven one day, but they didn't do what they should have done before they left this earth and this life that allows them into heaven. Even religious people are sinful people and in need of a Savior. In the book of John, we're going to be in just a couple of moments, there's a man who's a very religious person. He's a religious man. He gets curious about Jesus. And, and this is a teacher that people looked up to, and, and he was devout in his Judaism. But there must be something unique about Jesus here early on in his ministry because this man is, is, is curious, and he wants to know more about Jesus. He wants to talk to Jesus, but he doesn't want other people to know that he wants to talk to Jesus. So one night, in secret, he goes to see Jesus. And this is where we pick up in John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, 
This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, we don't know what Nicodemus' response is to Jesus here in this moment. We do know that later on, after Jesus died and before he was buried, Nicodemus is one of the people there to anoint the body of Jesus before he is buried. But then we have very little information about Nicodemus beyond what's found right here in John chapter 3. What we do know is that here in John 3, Jesus laid out clearly for Nicodemus what genuine conversion looks like. Now follow along in your handout as I go through this. You can write in the, the, um, the responses you see on the screen. But first we see that conversion is necessary. Conversion is necessary. You're going to see there in verse 5, Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, Nicodemus, and by default to us today, unless one is born again. Have you heard that term again before? Unless one is born again. Again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is clear with Nicodemus here. He says, he says, you have to be born again. If you're not born again, you will not enter into heaven. You're like that singer who's on the outs of the wedding party, the banquet. You can't go in because you are not on the list. You must be born again, Jesus says, to enter the kingdom of heaven. A person might say, but I think that I can get into heaven or at least maybe have a better afterlife than the one I'm in right now by doing this or doing that. And there's a whole lot of people who believe that their, their religion can get them into heaven. Nicodemus thought that. In fact, as a, as a teacher of Judaism, Nicodemus taught that if you do this and you do this and you do this, then God will be happy with you and then you will have access to God in heaven. But Jesus says that something is necessary for salvation beyond any faithful religious adherence. It takes more than just being a good person. You have got to be born again. Nicodemus' response, look at this. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? This is Verse 5 again, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now you can write in, conversion is supernatural. Conversion is not only necessary, it is supernatural. So Jesus makes it clear here that this rebirth is not according to mankind's ability. It's not according to their power. It is supernatural. It is spirit-enabled rebirth. Now, when something is supernatural, that means that it cannot happen according to human ability. In this case, God has to be the one who carries it out. There's a pastor in Louisville, Kentucky by the name of Sam Amadi who, who writes this. He uses a statement, conversion is supernatural. And he says, most Christians would gladly assent to that statement. 
but we don't often, often act like we believe it. We obsess over ministry methods and church programs to the point that anyone on the outside looking in would wonder if we really thought converting a lost soul was up to us. We talk about conversion as if it's making decisions rather than making disciples. We describe faith repentance as asking Jesus into your heart rather than the radical, life-altering response of turning from sin and bowing before the reign of King Jesus. We talk about the glory of a, relation, of a personal relationship with God through Christ, but leave folks with the impression that the personal relationship with God can also be a private one, one without the church. In the Bible, however, conversion is supernatural. It is a work of God's word and spirit, no less than the same power that brought the universe into existence. In just a moment, we're going to see the roles of conversion, how God has a role in conversion and how man has a role in conversion. But what I want to make absolutely clear before we get to that is that every bit of the born-again experience, the conversion, is supernatural. That it is something that God does in the heart and in the mind of a human being that absolutely radically changes every bit of who that person is. And you can say all day long, I go to church at such and such place, or I was saved at such and such time, but if your life hasn't been radically altered by the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it is reason enough to wonder, is there genuine conversion that's taking place? Conversion is supernatural. Next, conversion is by grace through faith. It's by grace through faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 for, for by grace you have been saved through faith, Paul says, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. So Paul is, is, is reinforcing here and he's expounding on what Jesus has been talking about with Nicodemus. Grace is receiving something that you don't deserve. Faith is complete trust and confidence in Jesus. So if we were to take those, those definitions and put it here in this, in this verse with uh, Romans chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul saying, for by grace, so by receiving something that you don't deserve, you have been saved through faith, which is complete trust and confidence in Jesus. And then he reminds us, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. You got no reason to boast. There's no reason whatsoever to say, look at me and look at what I've done. Because it's simply a gift from God. A minute ago, I referenced the, the roles and the responsibilities of, of conversion. And um, here's what those roles and responsibilities look like. What's God's responsibility and what's man's when it comes to conversion? First of all, God gives life to the dead. He gives life to the dead. And we're not talking here like possum, playing possum, acting dead. No, we're talking no heartbeat whatsoever. There's no brain waves that's, that's going through your, through your brain. You are absolutely and completely spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, when we were dead, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, he says. We were dead and he has made us alive. He has made us alive. Secondly, God gives sight to the blind. 
He doesn't just give life to the dead, he gives sight to the blind. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter four talks about how we were blind to the gospel of Jesus Christ before our conversion. Starting in verse three, he says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the lost case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. In other words, Satan has completely put blinders on you where you cannot see. But what happens? To keep them, by the way, Satan, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. Paul continues, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And what Paul's saying there is that you were completely blind to spiritual things, but what God has done is opened your eyes so you could see. Next, he gives the gift of repentance. He gives the gift of repentance. Did you know that God did not have to allow you to repent? We were, we were born sinners, which means that we, from the very time we are born, are cast off and separated from God because of our sin. God is a holy God. There is no God like our God. There is no being like our God. He didn't have to offer a gift of repentance. But in Acts chapter 11, verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent. When they heard the gospel, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Do you hear that? God has granted repentance that leads to life. Here's the role of man. If the role of God is all these supernatural things, giving life to the dead, giving sight to the blind, giving gift of repentance, here's the role of man. Number one, repent of sin. Genuine conversion always includes the repentance of sin. Acts chapter three, verses 19 through 20. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Repent, turn back from your sin. Number two, believe in Jesus. Repent of sin and believe in Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Perish means have eternal death spiritual death, eternal spiritual death, should not perish but have eternal life. Going back to the idea of the periodic table, genuine conversion is an essential that you have got to get right. If you don't, eternity hangs in the balance. The work of conversion is already done by Jesus and all that remains is for us to repent of sin and believe in Jesus. But once you have been converted, there's a whole lot of other people who have not yet been converted. And that leads us to talking about another part of this essential, and that is evangelism. Um, every Sunday morning, when we get ready to leave from, from this place, the last words that we give you are three words. Get out of here. <laughs> Time for lunch. No, what are they? You are sent, right? You are sent. And this comes directly from John chapter 20. 
So take your Bibles and turn there to John chapter 20. That statement of you are sent is not just a cliche way of saying, hey, we're done in this place. It's time for you to go home or go lunch, wherever you're going to go from this place now. We say that because it's what Jesus had to say before he ascended back to heaven. John chapter 20, Jesus has been crucified, he has risen, but the disciples are clueless now on what to do. And they're full of fear and they're thinking they're going to lose their lives the way Jesus lost his life. So John chapter 20, starting in verse 19, read with me in your Bible. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. What did he find in his hands and his side? The holes, right? The, the proof of his resurrected body. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. If you look at the book of John, one of the themes that you're going to find all throughout the book of John is this idea of sent. In fact, over 20 times throughout the book of John, you're going to find this idea in some way. The vast majority of the time, it's the Father has sent the Son to carry out the mission that he's given him. But at the very end of the book of John, that whole, that whole paradigm shifts to where now it is not necessarily the Father sending the Son, it's the Son sending us. The sent one becomes the sending one. And what are the people to do? What are the disciples to do? Matthew 28 shows us that Jesus sends out his disciples to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So he's sending them to go make disciples. You cannot make disciples of people who are unregenerate and unconverted. You can try. You can bring a person into the church and you can teach them really good things and their life may be better, but they are still an unregenerate, unconverted person. Conversion, genuine conversion, must always take place first. But how do you go about making that disciple in the beginning? Well, we have a term that we use called evangelism. Have you heard of evangelism before? Yeah? Real easy to hear about it and talk about it, but it's really, really difficult to do it. What I want to do this morning is not necessarily um, give you 10 steps to lead your friends to the Lord, but what I want to do is take just a couple of moments to focus on a few thoughts that center around that idea of you are sent. Go to the heart of the matter rather than the action of the matter. And if you want some resources later on the action of the matter, let me know and I'll be happy to send those to you. Continuing on in your handout. Number one, God is always at work around us drawing people to himself. God is always at work around us drawing people to himself. Now we talked a lot about this in the summertime with our Experiencing God series. God is always at work around you. It may be in your family, it may be in your neighbors, it may be in your coworkers, it may be in your friends, but God is at work around you right now. Now here's the cool part in this. Drawing people to the Father is God's job, it's not yours. 
He invites you to join him in that. He wants to use you in that, but he's the one that's raising interest about spiritual matters. He's the one who is convincing. He is the one who's drawing the lost to himself. God's word is very clear about that. And I don't know about you, but that's a relief to me because it takes a lot of the pressure off of me and allows me to simply open my eyes and watch and see where, God, are you working? Where can I join you in your work? But it's God who is drawing We also know that God uses people to lead others to Jesus. God's at work around us. He's always drawing people to himself, but God is always using other people to lead others to Jesus. That's where we come in as Jesus' disciples even now. John Piper was preaching a sermon on on John chapter 4 one time, and and he said this. He said, I read recently a great story about William Wilberforce, the British Christian politician who labored about 20 years to overthrow the slave trade in Britain. It illustrates what happens in your relationships with people when you see the world the way Jesus sees it. Wilberforce was surrounded by people who were hardened to personal faith in Christ by the formalities of their churches and the nominally Christian boarding schools. But his way of looking at the world was that they were in great need of personal faith in Christ as their Savior and personal walk of allegiance to Jesus as Lord. So he would keep a list of people that he was talking to about vital religion and personal faith with ideas on how to approach them. He would often spend an hour following dinner. This is what really struck me in this story, Piper says, thinking out how he might develop what he called launchers, openings in conversation with friends so as to launch into a talk of religion. Isn't that remarkable? Have you ever done that? You're not alone. It's been done for centuries by people who care for perishing sinners. One entry in the journal of William Wilberforce read, Mr. S. and Mrs. S., what books are they reading? I should give them good ones. Walker's Sermons. Another note, call on Mrs. S. and talk a little. Lend her Pastor Venn's last sermon. Education of their children, Inquire about the education of their children. Inquire about their prayer life, etc. They're coming on Sunday to church to hear Pastor Vin. Call often ahead of time and be kind. He wrote in there, be kind. It seemed that he often communicated more than he thought. One story goes like this, that once after talking for some time to an ill friend, Lord N, we don't know the rest of his name, but Lord N, Wilberforce was aware that he had not broached the issue of religion. Another friend came in and asked the invalid how he was. Lord N replied, as well as I can be, with Wilberforce sitting here and telling me that I'm going to hell. But Wilberforce didn't even think that he was talking about religion, but his life was talking about it. Piper concludes this by saying, so here is a world-class statesman of the British Parliament who labored for decades in the frustrating secular business of politics to overcome the slave trade in Great Britain, taking time with a friend to warn him about a reality that he would never have seen except that he learned from Jesus to see the world in a totally different way. How intentional and strategic are you in allowing God to use you to save other people? Now, this is convicting to me, and I hope it's convicting to you as well. We strategize with financial plans. We strategize with schedules. We strategize in raising our kids. We strategize for a ton of things. 
but do we strategize for reaching the lost with the good news of Jesus? That one convicts, convicts me down to the core. What kind of strategy do I have for reaching my lost friends with the gospel? And third, God continually invites us into his saving work. He's drawing people to himself, he's using us, and he invites us into that saving work. Once again, that's something we found in our Experiencing God series this, this summer. God is in the profession of redemption. And he invites those who have experienced his redemption to bring others to that redemption. There will never be a time in the life of a Christian in which God gives the green light to just coast through life without a thought to the lost. Yet so many Christians are consumed with the business of Christianity and the community of Christianity and the comfort of Christianity and the me of Christianity and what I want in Christianity that they completely miss the assignment of Christianity. The purpose and the assignment of Christianity is that one saved human being joins themselves with other redeemed human beings like we are in the church right now, and they seek to pull from the gates of hell as many people as possible before those people take their final breath. The purpose of Christianity is that souls are saved to the glory and the pleasure of God. That people who are far off away from God are drawn near to him through the person and work of Jesus and through the efforts of his people. Christian, God has called you to be involved in this work of redemption, and there is no excuse whatsoever for not being involved. How much hatred must you hold in your heart to be complacent towards any person who is on their way to hell? As a Christian, Jesus has placed the lifeguard float in your hands to, to throw out to the drowning. How could we ever stand on the edge of the pool and watch friends and family drown without ever throwing them a lifeline? We can't force a person to accept the lifeline of Jesus, but we can sure make it crystal clear that that person can be saved from eternal death. Now, I believe that God has given us a vision of reaching 1% of the lost population of this city with the good news of Jesus, and he can do it. He doesn't have to use us to do so, but he invites us to join him in his saving work. So two questions that I have for you here at the end. Number one, have you been truly converted? Have you been truly converted? We talked about a few moments ago what that genuine conversion looks like. It's the repenting, it's the turning away from sin and believing in Jesus alone for salvation. So number one, have you been converted? Have you been truly converted? Number two, if you have been converted, have you joined God in his saving work? Have you joined God in his saving work? Are you pouring your heart out on behalf of the lost friends and family and community of people around you? I'm gonna simply leave those two questions right there for you to dwell on and for you to think through. And if you wanna to, want to talk about conversion and what it looks like or talk about what it looks like for you to love your neighbors and witness to your neighbors and evangelize the lost, then please reach out and, and talk with me or another Christian friend about what either one of those things looks like. But Christian, that's our role. That's our assignment. It's an essential that we have got to get right. 
The church of Jesus Christ will never, ever, ever be defeated. He's promised that. But the salvation of future generations rests in the current generation of believers. Father, would you help us to reach those future generations with the gospel? Whether it's the people around us, from senior citizens all the way down to the youngest of of children. Father, help us to know what it looks like to throw that lifeline from the edge of the pool. Father, help us to address the virtual hatred in our hearts that doesn't push us to go talk to those who are lost. And Father, we pray that your church is built and expands. The kingdom of God grows as a result of the ministry of this church and the individual members of and disciples who meet here. Our Father, we love you. We thank you for loving us. Thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.